Welcome to Altered Fates. My name is Abla Al-Sharnubi. Altered Fates is a podcast about turning points and how we choose to navigate them. In each episode, I invite a guest to tell me about a moment in their lives where events conspired to instigate change and propel them forward. My guest for this episode is Joseph Dennison Carey. After training in Italy, Joseph founded the Bread and Butter Supper Club with friends. He went on to work at the Waterhouse Project and Pigeon Restaurant in East London and is now a guest chef on ITV's This Morning. We discuss the terrifying nature of live TV and forging your own path. I hope you enjoy our chat. Do I believe in fate? Mm. Wow. This is like a terrible... I feel already I'm noticing how bad I'm going to be for a podcast. No! I, whenever I think about something, I just sit there in silence for like two minutes. That's fine. I, I don't think I do. Right. Yeah. I don't think I do. Because I'm not sure I know what it means. Okay. Yeah. As in, like, how would you define fate? Maybe that will help me come up with an answer. I guess something that sort of meant for you something that's not kind of preordained well some some of my guests have said that they believe it's that you create the opportunity for things to align for you and they feel fated mm. because you've set your intention towards something and other people think that there's some cosmic plan for you and that you're destined to do a certain thing or meet a certain person mm. i suppose so i don't i don't think that i do believe in fate I think I remember when I was like in my late teens and like earliest 20s, like 2021, 20, I used to have this idea. It's probably not the answer you're looking for, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So I used to think that whenever you whenever we like review the past, it's always linear. Right. Yeah. Everything happened in order. Sequence. And then the future is this like, you know, mess of a bunch of different um, like potential outcomes. But once it's happened it will then be reviewed linearly, which means that I suppose there's, you could look at the future, like eventually the future will be linear, which suggests that there actually is only one way that things can happen because they only will happen one way. I've always thought of it like every decision you make opens up a few options mm. and then you choose one of them and yeah. then that opens up a few more options yeah. and then you choose one of those and then, do you see what I mean? More like a tree. Yeah. But what you're saying is actually there's one there's one route through. Yeah. Because you're always going to make the decisions that you that you're going to that make. you're going to make because so, you're you. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of is predestined, but there's just no. Wow, I've psyched myself out, and now I <laughs> now I don't know what the answer is. I'm going to stick to no. I don't think okay. I do believe in fate. So you think? Do you think you make your own? You make your own kind of fate. You make your own way. I think that when it comes to what I choose to believe, then I choose to believe that there's no fate because I think the idea that there's fate implies like a lack of freedom in, in choice. Mm -hmm. That's that's cool. I mean, I think for some people, the opposite is more comforting that someone's got me, mm. you know, like I don't have to worry too much because whatever, like in the Middle East, that's a very prevalent kind of idea that what's you, what's yours will come to you and what isn't yours will never come to you so don't worry about it mm. do you know what i mean i do know what you mean and i can understand why that would be comforting for me that it feels like surrendering responsibility yeah and and it sort of is yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's just like yeah. yeah well i think that that like growing up that's been a big thing for me is taking responsibility like in general yeah and i don't like the idea of just you know um passing it on i think like i have to be 
be secure in the decisions I make and understand why I do the things that I do. And I'm responsible for the outcome of those decisions. And growing up a lot, you know, coming back to that question of responsibility, I used to have a lot when I was a kid because for a long time it was just me and my mum and she worked full time. So I would come home from school and have to make sure I did my homework and make sure my room was tidy, even though it never was. <laughs> and I would often cook when I got home. And that was a big part of my routine and something that I loved doing. I remember being a little dissatisfied with the whole education, educational system, education system. Why? I just didn't feel super engaged with it or by anything that I was learning. There were subjects that I liked, like I liked maths and part of English, but there was nothing that really grabbed my attention. And I think that my um, results were reflecting that. Right. Um, and so I was about to do my A-levels and they ask you, you know, do you want to go straight into uni or do you want to defer? And I knew that I didn't want to jump straight from one academia to another. So I decided to take a year out. Mm -hmm. um, I got a place at Oxford Brooks and it was unconditional. So I knew I had it. Um, and so I took this year out. And at the time, I just started cooking at home. And so when it came to making that decision um, with what to do with the year out that I knew I was going to take, one of the only things um, that I enjoyed and was good at was cooking. And so I decided to move to Italy and go to culinary school. Um, Bold move. Well, I just, it was good because it was an opportunity. You know, I have, it's almost, it was almost a little bit daunting to like look at this whole year of my life, which is such a large amount of time at 18. Yeah. Um, and it's now my responsibility to fill it. Like mm -hmm. I'm not gonna be at school or at uni, but I can't just sit in the house playing Xbox all day, every day for a year. I, I have to do I, something with it. I think a lot of 18 year olds maybe would have, but yeah. I did feel a sense of like, I have to actually do something with my time. And because I knew that I liked cooking, um, I sat down with my mum, and we made a plan. And I went to Italy and I was out there for eight months. I went to culinary school for two, and then I worked um, in a restaurant uh, for six. It was like a Michelin star restaurant and basically learned the foundations of the skills that I've built on now, like the foundations of all of my cooking skill and knowledge. Um, and then came back and went to uni for two years before I dropped out. And so just going back to your time in Italy, like when you, you know, you get to Italy, you day one of culinary school. What was your feeling? Were you like, oh, man, I'm in the right place. This is this is exactly where I should be. Was it was it scary? Was it daunting? Was it exhilarating? I remember, I don't remember feeling uh, scared at all. I think I was quite excited. I think it was the first time for me, really. I mean, I was away from home without any parental supervision, but not just away somewhere outside of London, like in a different country that spoke a different language, to learn basically a completely new skill with new people it felt like very liberating i think it's funny though because often when people, whenever people ask me about what italy was like and then i recall it it's through these like rose tinted glasses because that's what we do when we remember things we always remember the best and then when <laughs> i really think about it it was the hardest like the hardest period of my life really oh yeah D describe why well the school bit was easy because the school bit, you're there for two months. Everyone at the school is, you know, can speak English and you're with international students from all over the world who can all speak English. 
and you're only doing, I mean, you're doing like four recipes a day. It's pretty like low, um, like low maintenance. It's not very intense work. You do that for two months and then they send you on um, a placement and you're there for six months and it's full-time chef work in a Michelin star kitchen, which is usually one team. So you're, I think I was working like 66 hours a week unpaid at 18 and 19 in a profession that I'd never done before at a level that I had never done before. And, you know, you're working like Tuesday to Sunday um, in the same building with the same faces every day, like push, push, push. And then you have your Monday off where you do your laundry and recover in bed. So you're still not seeing anybody. So it was like six months of just, you know, never really seeing anyone outside of work. And even when I did, it's in a country that doesn't speak my language or rather I don't speak theirs. So I couldn't make any real connections. And actually, I think at the time it was really difficult, just like the loneliness aspect was really difficult on top of the workload. But then I remember it and I'm like, yeah, man, it was a great time. I, I've obviously never been in one, but I've watched a lot of TV about yeah. Michelin. There's a lot of TV. And it's pretty, it seems very exacting, very high stress, very like, you know, the, the sort of level of excellence is super high. Mm. There's no room for much error. Was that your experience of it? It it was my experience of it, but I think that, I think, well, first of all, a lot of media that sort of portrays that environment, it's like, it's like the, the abusiveness of it is very glamorized, I think. Right. Is um, it abusive? In it, Yeah, in some cases, but not all. I've worked in lovely kitchens with lovely mm. people. In fact, I'd argue that all bar maybe one kitchen that I've worked in has been lovely right. with like really lovely people. When stuff goes wrong, it's the worst experience ever because it's hot and it's loud and it's stressful and you've got people shouting and stuff. But like if you just do your best to listen and, you know, work clean and quick and do your job and ask questions when you don't know what to do. That's a huge thing. Right. When people just like just try and that's when it goes. If you try and fake it till you make it in a kitchen, you're going to have a bad time. Right. But if you're just like accepting of the fact that you don't know everything mm. and you can learn from other people, it's it's actually fine. Okay. So that's that was the background. This mm. is the, you know, we're working up to the turning point. So what yeah. happened next? Right. So got back to the UK, started working in a kitchen, um, in East London for a little bit in like the summer holidays before starting university. Cause I still have my place at uni at right. Oxford Brooks. Um, and what, yeah. So just like worked in the kitchen, started uni. I think that I quickly realized that, um, I, uh, uni wasn't at least for me what it had been cut out to be in the holidays. So in like the summer and winter holidays, I'd come back to London and work. Um, so I worked with an amazing guy called Gabriel Waterhouse uh, at the Waterhouse Project, which is still running. Um, my first shift with him, he was still running it as a supper club out of his flat. Wow. Then he moved uh, to a tile showroom, like a kitchen showroom that sold tiles. Um, we ran it there. I then had to leave because I was going back to uni. So I was just there for a few months in the summer. But he's now got an amazing space just off the canal, um, sort of near uh, Broadway Market, if anyone's interested. It's great food. Yeah. Um, what's it What's it called? The Waterhouse the Project? The Waterhouse Project, okay. yeah, by Gabriel Waterhouse. So I worked with him, went back to uni for a semester, came back, worked, 
in the holidays. And then, I mean, eventually, I mean, like cut to halfway through my second year. When I came back, it was the winter holidays. I ran my supper club for the first time. Um, so, so you decided to start a supper club? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is good. But it's so good that you did that because I'm just like <laughs> skipping. Yeah, so I... Um, Gabriel's Gabriel's The Waterhouse Project was a supper club. I'd also worked with Laura Jackson and Alice Levine uh, on like a one-off supper club that they did. I'd seen this environment where um, people, you know, food is this vessel that brings people together, which is great. But more importantly, it was something that you could kind of do quite casually. Mm. Like I was a teenager, so I didn't have the money to buy a space to run a restaurant. And here was this format that would allow me to like put into practice all of the things that I was learning whilst not having to spend like a bunch of money, if you know what I mean. And also kind of experiment with your yeah. cooking style and the things that you, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, I, I, I'd been thinking about it and I, I came back to London uh, halfway through my second year and I found a space. I remember there was a day, so I was like running around London. It was really hot, actually. It was a really hot day. It must have been like just before the holidays. Anyway, I was walking around London, basically all over London, like east, north, south, west, trying to find a space that I could run this supper club. And I was just walking into like kitchen showrooms being like, hey, do you have any working kitchens in here that I could use? And they were like, no, get out. <laughs> um, and that happened so many times. And I remember uh, on the day that I found the place, I was like, I've been like running around. It was really hot. I was like super sweaty. And I've been looking up places on Google Maps and I was going to this place and it was the last place. And I was like, if they say no, I'm going to just stop looking. I'm going to give up on the whole idea. I'm just going to give up on the whole idea because it's like I've been to like eight, nine places. They've all said no. Some of them are like super far away. It's just not possible. So if this place says no, I'm going to stop looking. And I walk in like covered in sweat. (laughs) Um, I'm like, hey, uh, what like, do you guys have any working kitchen? They're like, yeah. I'm like, would I be able to use some... Uh, I want to do the supper club. And they were like, yeah, that sounds awesome, dude. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> and it turns out that I'd walked in just as like all of the owners of this space were having a meeting. So like, they were all there so and they were like... I would say that was fake, Joseph. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> Carry on. Um, this is the thing. I don't know, man. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe fate is real. But um, yeah, so they, they said yes. And so I then got to use this space for the supper club. I ran it with three of my best friends from school henry noah and tara um tara who came literally just to wash dishes which was like so nice of her um and had this amazing time where all of my family and a lot of my family friends came and supported me and and we cooked a lot of good food and made money from it and then went back to uni for the second half of my second year and was like i've just like been in the city that i'm from doing the thing that i love with the people that i love making money from it And I've now just come back to a city where I don't really have any friends and I'm paying thousands of pounds for a course I'm not engaged in. What am I doing here? Why am I here? Um, And so I dropped out, dropped out of uni. And did that feel like a big decision? Did you get any resistance from family? But you felt confident that it was the right thing. I felt confident. And again, you know, I had like my mum was super supportive. My mum sat down with me one day. We were in White City. And she'd picked up on it. She was like, I don't think that you're happy. Do you want to talk about it? And so we sat down and we had a conversation and she was like, look, you're an adult, so I trust you. And if that's how you feel, I will support you in that decision. So she was super supportive. I had a big falling out with my dad about it, um, which was like the biggest falling out that we'd ever had. Um, Yeah. But, you know, 
I get it. He'd been supporting me financially as well. And my relationship with him was not the same as my relationship with my mum. So I can understand why he wouldn't have been as confident in my decisions because he just didn't, he didn't know me as well. So there was some resistance from him, but it didn't matter because I knew what I wanted to do and it just made sense to me. So yeah, dropped out, came back to London, worked at Pigeon for about four and a half months, I think. Which is a restaurant in East London. Restaurant in East London. Worked there and that was great. I mean, we talk about like what what's the restaurant environment like and is it horrible and everyone's abusing drugs and alcohol. That does exist. I'm not going to deny it. But Pigeon was this like lovely restaurant with a lovely team. And I ended up leaving because I wanted to pursue the supper club more. The The menu at Pigeon changes every week. So it was a super steep learning curve. Right. Um, And I learned so much there. And then I got to a point about four months in where I was like, okay, I dropped out of uni because I was trying to pursue this dream of mine. And as as lovely as it is working in this restaurant, I want to kind of push myself. Yeah, left Pigeon, having learned loads, and then moved into this one-bed flat in Clapton, like ready to kick it all off. Um, I remember this. Yeah, like moved into this flat, got a dining table, got a bunch of new tableware, sold like a month and a half, a month and a half's worth of tickets for the supper club. And then um, the pandemic hit. London and everything shut down and so I had to like refund all the tickets and you know um and then it didn't happen so disappointing yeah well that this is the thing though I mean the topic of this conversation is turning points in a way was it fate again Joseph if that that hadn't have happened then this turning point wouldn't have happened. Sensing a theme here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right, you're really, uh, you're really gunning to change my opinion <laughs> no, on kidding. this whole faith thing. I'm joking. Um, so pandemics happening, refunded all the tickets. Yeah. And so, and then, so you, where were you then, like? In terms so. Of your, yeah. The pandemic hit. I refunded the tickets. I was then living in this flat. Um, in Clapton at the height of, you know, right at the beginning when everything shut down and no one was allowed out unless you were exercising or whatever. I was in this flat with like no natural light and no garden. I didn't, I couldn't see anyone. I wasn't working, couldn't see my friends. And then my aunt and uncle, and this is what I mean by like having support. And they were like, look, we've got loads of space out here. We've got a room for you. Come out, we've got open space. You can see your family. You can see your cousins. You can actually talk to people. Mm. I'd been filming these like little cooking videos and stuff on social media um, and just like posting them and trying to be more active and because there was nothing else to do. Obviously, there was the wake of the murder of George Floyd, mm. which had created this, um, you know, like real life uproar, but then this whole like social media um, the reaction, the like movement. BLM movement yeah. and, and, and there were like everyone seemed to be talking about it. And I remember feeling, well, I remember not knowing how I felt. I remember getting the news and being like, okay, cool, this again. And then seeing that everyone was so outspoken about it. And I remember, I I don't know, I think at first I felt maybe a little defeated because obviously there's this feeling of we're, we're making no progress. Sure. Um... And then this pressure that came quite quickly of a lot of people sharing their opinions 
and I hadn't said anything because I, I, like I say, I didn't know what I felt and I didn't know what to say. And so I sort of sat on it for a bit until I, yeah, until I sort of pieced it together. Um, and then I posted um, a poem that I wrote that basically the all I could say in a situation like that is, you know, I, I don't represent anybody. Um, and when people talk about the black experience, sometimes I get a bit frustrated because I'm like, there isn't one black experience. It's like we are individuals. We all live a different experience. Um, and so and so I posted this poem about my black experience as um, a black but mixed race black man growing up in London. I posted this poem anyway. It was a beautiful poem. Thanks. Yeah, it really was. It was very moving. Thank you. I mean, well, what I what I did with that poem was just try and be brave and just and, and admit to saying that like. I, I cannot, all I can do is just reflect on my own experience and this is what I think. And I'm willing to have open conversations um, about that with anybody that wants to have that conversation. And I tried my best to put that into words in this poem. So you're making all these, you're doing all these posts on social media and, and, and you put up this poem. What was the response like to that? Weirdly, I was not expecting the response that I got. I remember, so I'd never done anything like that before. And it was like a Thursday night and it was like 11 p.m. It was super late and I was up and I wrote this poem, learned it and then recorded it. And it, like I say, it was super late and I was going to not post it because I suppose I was thinking, do people care? Is my opinion valid? How well received is it going to be? Like there were a lot of questions and I didn't know that it was the right thing to do. And I just posted it and loads of people watched it like tens of thousands of people watched it wow um and i was just like inundated with you know so many people um either just being thankful that i'd shared or a lot of um a lot of people that could relate to my experience um and i was in my flat one day and i was doing my washing up and my phone which was next to me it was face up by the sink started to ring and it was Holly. Holly Willoughby. Holly Willoughby, who um, presents this morning. This morning yeah. um, and is also my god is, is married to my godfather, and I've known since I was uh, very young. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was calling me, and I was like washing this plate. And I remember seeing it thinking, that's really weird. What, like, what? what reason could she possibly have <laughs> like to call me i don't know what what <laughs> what i could offer um but i picked it up and you know said hello and we start we had like a small chat and then she said and i can't remember exactly but she was like i saw the um poem that you'd posted on uh social media and a few people that i work with had seen it and they were asking about how I knew you and I explained blah, blah, blah. And like to cut a long story short, they wanted to know if you wanted to come on this morning to do a cooking segment. And I remember being like super confused at, for like a couple of seconds and then thinking I was going to say no. Why? Because it seemed really daunting is quite daunting. Yeah. <laughs> like and, live TV. Yeah, like super daunting. And, and something that my mum will tell you is that I'm a bit of a perfectionist and I sometimes struggle to do things before I think I'm ready for them. Right. Um, and so she said, do you want to do it? And I was like, oh my God, that sounds really scary. I don't think I can do it. 
And this, by the way, all happened in the space of like half a second, all of these thoughts like rushing around my head. And then I just thought, I guess something like clicked. And I thought that, um, you know, these kinds of opportunities, these are the opportunities that you hear about that only come around once. And even though I know Holly, she would have put a lot of faith in me to ask me to come on to the show that like has made her very well known and she's been on it for a long time. There's a lot of trust in me to do a job properly, to invite me onto that massive show. And if I'd have said no, she might have never asked again. You know what I mean? She might have thought, okay, cool. It's not something that he's into, whatever, fine. Yeah. And I just thought that you, you, it's almost one of those opportunities that you just can't say no to because that'll, that's it. Yeah. That's like, that's the window. This you, is it. You've stepped up to the plate. Are you going to, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, it's all well and good having the opportunities, but like you have to make them work. You have to walk through the door. Yeah. <laughs> Someone could show you the door, but you yeah, have to walk through it. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. So I was like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, and then hung up and had like a small panic attack. <laughs> I had 75 freakouts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I prepared. I spoke to my mum. What, were... what was your mum saying at this point? I have no idea. Well, my mum was saying, be prepared. Right. She was like, it's live TV. Um, don't think that you can wing it know what you're going to do. What are you going to make? I actually spoke to um my friend Henry that I did the supper club with, who's also a chef. Yeah. I was like, what should I make on this show? Like what's something that I feel like represents me and isn't too stuffy. And we came up with this like fried chicken sandwich. And it was a recipe that I actually, the fried chicken recipe, which uses like 50% normal flour, 50% rice flour. I'd gotten from Ben from Pigeon. So right. I like used that. And then like this uh, gochujang sauce and it was this fried chicken burger. And then for a week in the week leading up to me going on live TV for the first time, I cooked the chicken sandwich every day to time. So like we looked up, my mum and I, like how much time you get. And it was, it's about seven minutes. So I came up with like a script, like talking points. I want to say this, 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 and this. And then would practice cooking it in my kitchen, just talking about it out loud which I had practiced from living by myself through a pandemic, just talking out loud to myself like a <laughs> madman. Um, and just like practice, practice, practice to the point where it got to the day. And uh, my friend Andrew Chaplin, Chappers came. Yes. Their sort of film crew came, did two shots of tequila to calm the nerves. <laughs> nice. It was really interesting, you know, because in my head I was calm but my heart was beating faster and harder than it ever had before. I'm it was surprised. it was really weird. Cause I I genuinely I genuinely was like, I don't feel super nervous, but I was shaking. But your body's going <laughs> yeah. seriously. Yeah, like, yeah, like fight or flight. Yeah, yeah. Like, um so I did some shots of tequila to calm me down and then just went through it. Got my set, the cameras were like rolling, um, got my seven minutes, had my script, cooked the sandwich start to finish and so all that prep totally saw oh, you yeah. through you were just like I know I yeah. know what I know what I'm doing I could have done it with my eyes closed that's so great yeah that's so brilliant and they were really happy with it they were like you did great and then they asked me to come back on and so I did the same thing again what did I make the second time can't remember Tartatan I think yes it was Tartatan um, yeah, I remember yeah so I did that the second time they asked me to come back again this time the the sort of restrictions were slowing down a bit so I could come into the studio. And then off the back of the third time, they offered me a contract for twice a month, every month for a year. 
Uh, and I took it. That's a massive life changer. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. It's a huge turning point. It's a huge turning point. <laughs> yeah. Um, my goodness. Okay, so so you, you obviously had all of that support, but was there an aspect of feeling like you needed to live up to something? I think that I... Um, I think that I put a lot of pressure on myself because, I mean, I don't know what I'm trying to prove or who to, but I think, especially now, and it's funny because at the time, like if you'd have asked me that at the time, like when I'd just gotten my contract um, with this morning, I don't think I would have been able to answer the question, but recently it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Like why, why I work the way that I do and what for, like to what end. And I offer, I feel this weird, um, almost like a bit of a guilt about my circumstances and that I suppose the best way to put it is, and whether or not this is valid, I don't know. It's a weird one because it's like a double-sided coin. Double-edged sword. Or yeah, all coins coin. have two sides. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that basically... I've grown up in an environment where, like I say, I've had a lot of support and also a lot of privilege. I went to a private school. I had a conversation when I was in year eight with a kid called Jordan, who was in year nine. We were super young and Jordan was mixed race. And I went to school with a bunch of white kids and we were two of the only non-white kids. And I remember when I was in year eight, we were walking down Highgate Hill to, to the bus. And I remember saying to Jordan, I feel guilty about um, the level of privilege that I have and the opportunities that I have. And so I've made a decision to not use them. Like when someone who works, like my mum works in TV or when Holly calls me, who I know and offers me a job on, you know, this morning, that's not, it's unfair for me to use that because not everybody has access to that. So I've decided that I'm not going to. And Jordan, and this, we were so young. It's crazy that he said this because he was a kid. He said to me, he was like, there are people that would kill to have the opportunities that you have. And you can bet that if they had them, they wouldn't waste them. And so for you to decide that you're not going to use them when you have them is an insult to all of those people who wake up every day wishing they had the opportunities that you had. And that, stuck, that has stuck with me forever. That is an incredibly wise thing for a nine-year-old to we say. Dude, were so young. Year nine. Oh, year nine. Right. I was like, this kid is like Yoda, man. That'd be hilarious. (laughs) Uh, I mean, we were still like mid-teens or something, right? So we were still super young. (laughs) Um, I think, just to circle back and answer your question, I think that I do, I look at um, people who have had a lot less than I have growing up and have achieved at my age or younger a lot more. people who have faced like real adversity and had to beat real odds and are doing incredibly well. And then with their success, doing really great things. And so I look at my circumstances and I do apply pressure to myself because I think that with everything that you have going for you, there's really no excuse. I want to just ask you um, a couple more things. One is like, how has being on This Morning changed your life? I, there's a very short answer, which is I think it's maybe more confident. I think cooking live in front of like a million people 
was at first really daunting, but then I started to get used to it. And I noticed that as I started to get used to that job outside of work, I started to become much more comfortable in like my own opinions. We were talking about before me being okay with telling someone I don't want to do something. Yeah. And like that level of confidence, I think it's really in the last couple of years that that started to happen because I'm like, I am who I am and I shouldn't, not that I shouldn't have to justify, but like, it's okay for me to feel the way that I feel. And that level of like self-confidence I think has come from doing a job in the public eye. Yeah, absolutely. And pushing yourself way out of your comfort zone. We were talking before about being introverted and, you know, it's a very like, you know, it's daunting for anybody. But I think for somebody that, you know, isn't necessarily a kind of jazz hands person, it's double trouble. You know, it's like it's a lot. Yeah. 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 What's great and something that's super valuable is that like at the heart of everything, at the heart of all of this change, I still love cooking. It's all the thing that I love doing. And I am at my happiest when I'm doing that, to be honest. Absolutely. And I think that what I've learned from all of these, you know, pivotal moments and changes, all of the changes that we've all been through in the last couple of years is that I'm not really making any plans. I'm just trying to take the opportunities as they come and see where I end up. Well, that's fantastic. That's a pretty zen attitude. Yeah. 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 Because who knows? That's the thing. I sort of, I think that what I, what the pandemic taught me was that you it's kind of futile to make plans. You literally never know what's going to happen. So just take what you have and try and build the best thing you can with it. It's so true. I remember saying to a friend, like, you know, with the whole, we don't know if there's going to be another lockdown or not a lockdown. We don't know if we're going to be able to fly anytime soon or all of that, all the just uncertainty of the pandemic. And it just dawned on me that life is always like that. We just don't have such a huge example of it. Yeah. You know, life is always unpredictable, always like anything can happen at any time. But we we somehow lull ourselves into the with this false sense of security that t- tomorrow will be the same as today. All of the structures will be the same. And yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was a big, yeah, it was a big takeaway for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's been so nice talking to you, Joe. It's been great. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thanks for having me. This has been so much fun. <laughs> this has been a great chat. I've learned a lot about myself. <laughs> <laughs> the altered fates couch <laughs> <laughs> yeah no this has been wicked man thank you thank you altered fates with Abla El Sharnubi is produced and edited by Amy Lee with music by Simon Little and Andrea Triana and artwork by Micah Van Neck and Richard Granger at Bunker London if you enjoyed this interview be sure to like and subscribe to be updated on upcoming episodes you can also find out more info and get in touch via Instagram at underscore altered underscore fates I'd love to hear from you.